Um, but for now, let's go and, and talk uh, a little bit more about the sweet spot. Uh, counting today, I have two more sweet spot messages for you this week and next week, and then we're going to move on to something else entirely. Um, but here we are at the cusp of what, for most of our school-age kids, is back-to-school season. Uh, you can tell that because the shelves at Walmart are empty. Uh, I think parents like Sue and I, for instance, are, are cautiously optimistic that maybe, just maybe, this year we can finally have a school year that isn't going to be interrupted in some way by the pandemic. Wouldn't that be nice? My daughter Jessica is a junior in high school. She has not had an uninterrupted year of high school yet. Um, it, it would be really nice, wouldn't it? And so we're kind of, you know, fingers crossed, prayerfully, cautiously optimistic that we're gonna be able to go forward in this. And a lot of families, a lot of parents are, are talking to their kids and we're trying to encourage our kids just to be disciplined in their studies, right? Because with all this back and forth that we've had in the last year and a half, with the in-school, out-of-school, the distant, the remote, the virtual learning, the here and the there, you know, it's, it's been hard to manage all that. And it's been hard for our students to, to maintain their routines. Um, of, of learning and, and to really buckle down. But this time, it's, it's the beginning of a new school year. You know, let's have a fresh start. Let's buckle down. Let's hit the books. Because after all, you can never learn too much, right? You can never learn too much. Our brains are a precious resource. And we would do well to make every, every effort to use them to the best of our ability, to fill them with knowledge of all sorts. At least that's usually what we tell ourselves, right? Nelson Mandela is quoted as saying, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And if you go to virtually any classroom, from kindergarten all the way through college campuses here, you're going to find cheesy-looking posters with inspirational artwork and quotes on them all over the, the room with with. Uh, quotes like that aim to motivate our students. Study hard, learn much, work as hard as you can, fill your mind. You have limitless potential. That's the message we want our young people to hear. And I would submit to you that there's an awful lot in the Bible that does in fact support that. We should put a lot of energy and a lot of effort into learning as much as we can. The Bible says knowledge is a good thing. The Bible advocates for learning in general, and certainly, especially, for learning and studying the Word of God. Consider some of these scriptures that come to mind. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 9 says, Instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. Do you catch that? That's saying righteous people add to their learning. Lifelong learners, right? One of my favorite little one-off verses from the book of Acts in chapter 17, Luke is writing about some of the different cities that Paul and, and, and his team traveled to and proclaimed the gospel. And he referred to the city of Berea and he said, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character, for they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Amen. They examined the, in other words, they studied the scriptures for themselves. They were self-motivated, self-starting learners 
who studied the Word of God just to make sure that their pastor wasn't feeding them a line of lies, just like y'all should be doing, right? Learning, that's a good thing. How about way back in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, before Joshua ever goes to fight the battle of Jericho, at the beginning of the story of his leadership, God says to him, Joshua, here's what you got to do, buddy. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. In other words, I think we could say study it day and night. Study God's word day and night. And here's one of my favorites. Back to the New Testament. Now, the author of the Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews, writes to his audience, and he's got a bone to pick with them because they haven't been studying enough. Look what he says to them in Hebrews chapter 5. He says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need somebody to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. In other words, somebody has been slacking in their studies. So the Bible says again and again in so many different ways, study is good, learning is good, knowledge is good. We should do it in a variety of areas, but especially and importantly with God's word. Have you ever in your life heard a pastor say, you probably shouldn't read that Bible? You know, the one thing that we could do that would be really detrimental to all of us is if you all started reading your Bibles more. No, 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 that's not the pastor's job. We don't want to say that. We don't want to do that. We, we take scriptures like these to heart in how we encourage one another to study God's word. But then, in the middle of the Old Testament, we have the book of Ecclesiastes. Before I show you that scripture, I want to just kind of give you the background of this book. The book of Ecclesiastes is it's kind of a difficult book to really understand if, if, if you're not familiar with it. Ecclesiastes is the memoir of an unknown man from the ancient times. Now, historically, a lot of people have suggested that it might be Solomon, King Solomon, but he never identifies himself as Solomon, so we don't really know for sure. He identifies himself by using this old title, Kohelet. Most of our Bibles in the modern language translate it as the teacher or the preacher or the speaker. But Kohelet writes his memoirs and Kohelet said, you know, I kind of had life in the palm of my hand. I had most everything I could ever want in life, but what I didn't really have was meaning and significance. I didn't really have a good grasp on the actual meaning of life. And so he writes this memoir about how at different seasons of his life, he pursued different pursuits, trying to come up with what is the real significance in life? What is the real meaning of life? And so at various points, Kohelet journeys to discover by pursuing hard work. I'm going to be the hardest worker there ever was. He pursues pleasure. I'm going to just eat, drink, and be merry, right? He pursues religion. He pursues success in his career. He pursues money. He pursues high moral character. He even pursues money itself. He says, I'm going to just, I'm sorry, knowledge itself. I'm going to endeavor to learn everything about everything and just figure out how much one person can know. But in all of these pursuits, he finds himself empty. And if you've read Ecclesiastes, you'll recall that he just says again and again, meaningless, meaningless. I did it all, but it was meaningless, 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 meaningless. And then at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of Kohelet's memoir, there's just a couple of teeny tiny paragraphs 
they kind of give commentary on the memoir. They kind of give closing, concluding thoughts. And in the middle of the epilogue, we read this one verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 12 says this. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body. Isn't that interesting? And every student in the room about to go back to school said, Amen. <laughs> of the making of many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body. Students, you know, when you are tired and you've had it with your homework and you're done and your parents are saying, no, you got to go back and do your homework. You tell them, I'm not being lazy. I am not being foolish. I'm just being biblical. <laughs> I am just being biblical. Of the making of many books, there is no end and much study wearies the body. Kohelet, I think, is a tragic character. We need to be very careful about trying to learn from his story without actually taking his advice because his story, I think, is a classic example of what not to do. This epilogue, I believe, as many scholars believe, was not actually written by him. This is someone else saying, okay, now that you've read his memoir, could we all just agree that what he was doing was a pretty foolish way to try and lead your life? just leads to weariness. But it kind of resonates, doesn't it? Kind of resonates. There's always something more to read. There's always something more to learn. There's always something more to digest. It can be overwhelming. And the question is, when is enough enough? Maybe a better question is, when is enough too much? As I would suggest it sometimes is. I believe the Bible shows us a few ways in which study, and yes, even Bible study, can go beyond the sweet spot. And here's one way that you'll know it's happened. We've missed the sweet spot if our studies lead only to division. If our study leads only to division, we've missed the sweet spot. Let me give you an example. The ancient Jews had been taught for, for generations and generations and centuries upon centuries that salvation was a matter of birthright. Their confidence in knowing that God was going to take care of them in this life and in the next was tied to who they could find in their family tree. And that is one of the many reasons why we read so many genealogies in the Old Testament. You know those parts of the Old Testament when it says so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, and so on and so on and so on. We read that and we go, oh my goodness, this could not be more boring. Why is this in the Bible? But the ancient Jews was like, they were like, oh my goodness, this is where it's at. Because that's the way they were able to be assured that God had their backs. If they could find themselves or their family in that family tree, in that genealogy, they felt good about those things. But Jesus came along and, and he kind of corrected that understanding of why that was important. He corrected their theology a little bit. Do you remember that Jesus said, you might think it's a big deal that you're descendants of Abraham, but trust me when I say God could turn these rocks into descendants of Abraham, if in fact that's what he wanted to do. Jesus had to correct that theology a little bit. He taught them that salvation is a matter of God's grace, not who's your dad, right? Uh, salvation was a matter of God's grace and it was available to anyone and everyone who will receive it. And so by the time the New Testament is being written, there's a lot of ethnic Jews who are becoming Christians, followers of Jesus, but they're still really, really concerned with their family tree because that's how they had always been taught. 
And so this needs to be adjusted and corrected. And the Apostle Paul writes in one of his letters to Timothy, he goes, you know, you got to deal with some of these people who are just, you know, if Ancestry.com was around in those days, they would have made billions off of these new believers who suddenly want to study everything and figure out all of these genealogies and, and all of these things. Look at what Paul says to Timothy about these people going into all of these genealogies. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. And isn't that what we're here to do? There's nothing wrong, I think Paul would say, with trying to figure out your family tree. But if you dive so deep into that study that all you're doing is arguing with your brothers and sisters about it, then maybe you've gone too far. Controversial speculations, controversy, debate, division among the people of God who are supposed to be on the same side in the same family. It reminds me of the, the ad campaign that went on for years and years, decades probably, uh, about the product that everybody likes but had differing opinions about why it was good. If you're my age or older, I think you're gonna know where I'm headed with this, and so I'm gonna give you the first half of the tagline and you're gonna argue with me. Are we ready? Tastes great! Let's Thank you, we know who's sanctified here and who's not. That's uh, <laughs> the Miller Lite ad campaign, right? Did you come to church today saying, I hope I hear more about beer from my past? Right? Miller Lite, it's like their, their ad campaign, the joke is we all like this beer, but we argue with each other about why we like it. And it's foolish, right? It's kind of like you're overthinking this. Just sit back and enjoy your beer. Don't record that part. <laughs> you know what though, Christians today, I think have a habit of doing the same thing because we study and we read and we research and then we spend our time debating our brothers and sisters about non-essential minutiae rather than celebrating God's saving work in our lives. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Amen. The comedian that was popular in the 80s and the 90s, a guy by the name of Emo Phillips, he did the, the late night circuit and the the comedy clubs. Emo Phillips, if you remember, his name was actually from Downers Grove and talked about Downers Grove in some of his routines. I heard this joke that he gave. I actually looked it up so I could read it word for word exactly as he says it because I can't do it the way he does it. And no, I'm not as good at telling jokes as Pastor Joe West was last week. So Emo Phillips tells this story. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. He said, but nobody loves me. I said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, great. Are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, 
Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. <laughs> We've gone from beer to suicide this morning and I'm only about halfway done. Y'all need to start praying for your pastor. <laughs> Look, it's great to study, right? It's great to study, it's great to learn, but if you've learned so much that all you can do is debate and argue with the people you're supposed to be getting along with, then maybe it's time to put the books down. Here's another clue. We've missed the sweet spot if we're ignoring what really matters. Sometimes studying the details causes us to miss the big picture. Several years ago, when Jessica was a toddler, Sue and I had something going on for the evening, and so we invited Grandma and Grandpa to come over and babysit her for the evening. Now, Jessica was kind of a picky eater, as a lot of toddlers are, but one of her favorites was frozen pizza. And so we prepared to go out for the evening. Grandma and Grandpa came over and Sue prepared a list of here's what Jessica's gonna need for dinner and to get to bed. And Sue, being very, very detail-oriented, wrote a very, very detailed description of how this all needed to go. My parents didn't eat frozen pizza. And so while it's a relatively simple process to cook a frozen pizza, as any college student will tell you, um, it was just something they hadn't done. So Sue wrote down, you know, here's how long you need to preheat the oven. Here's how long this is going to cook. You have to be very careful with the frozen pizza. They're great, right? But if we cook them too long, the crust burns. If we don't cook them long enough, the cheese is still frozen. You got to do it exactly the right way. So it said, here's the preheat temperature. Here's uh, when you need to put it in. Don't use a baking sheet. Put it directly on the rack of the oven and, and cook it for exactly this long. Pick it up, cut it up. Just so we'll love this for dinner. And so my mom, who is also a very detail-oriented person, was very careful to follow every detail on the list of how to cook the frozen pizza. And so she preheated the oven, and she's shaking her head at me right now. I can't believe <laughs> that. She preheated the oven to exactly the right temperature, and she took the pizza out of the wrapper and was careful that she didn't leave any plastic on it, right? You wouldn't want to bake the plastic into the pizza. She didn't get a baking sheet out as we told her not to do. She put it directly on the oven rack. She had it at exactly the right temperature, set the timer to exactly the right time, and walked away. And a few moments later, smoke began to billow from the oven. And the fire alarm started going off. And we have one of those fire alarms that doesn't beep. It has a woman's voice saying, fire, 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 evacuate the building. And my two-year-old is going, you know, like this. Well, in her concern over all the details of the instruction, mom missed one of the bigger picture issues, which is that when you put the pizza into the oven on the rack with no baking sheet, it should go right side up, not upside down. And so as it warmed up and began to cook, the cheese just dripped down onto the bottom of the oven and the sauce and it burned and it billowed and it smoked into this day in our Family lore that is known as the story of the upside down pizza. <laughs> Focusing on the details, I love you, mom, can sometimes, <laughs> can sometimes cause us to miss the obvious. Now, when it comes to focusing on the details, nobody in the entire Bible could outdo the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious sect that were active in the time of Jesus. They were the master of focusing on the details. 
and one detail that they were really good at was the issue of tithing. The Pharisees knew that the law said that uh, a tithe, that is one-tenth of everything you produce, belongs to God. And so the idea was that one-tenth of everything you produce needs to be brought as an offering into the temple. So for example, if in the course of a, a year there were 10 new sheep born into your herd, one of those 10 new sheep had to be brought as an offering. If your vineyard produced 10 barrels of wine, one of those 10 barrels had to be brought to the temple as an offering. If your fields produced 10 bushels of grain, one out of those 10 bushels had to be brought as an offering to the temple. But the Pharisees, they were all about the details. Okay, bushels of grain, fine, but what about the other stuff we grow? What about the little bits? We wouldn't want to you know, miss out and, and end up with God angry with us. Some of us, they said, have herb gardens. You know, we like a little seasoning with our stuff. We have herb gardens. We don't, we don't harvest bushels of herbs. You just harvest a little bit. What do we do with just a little bit? Now, I don't know what exactly they were growing. Maybe it was cilantro, right? What do we do with the cilantro? From I don't think there is cilantro in ancient Israel, but for the sake of argument, what do we do with it? So they would harvest maybe a cup of cilantro and think, well, I better bring one-tenth of one cup of cilantro to the temple. <laughs> and so they would bring their one-tenth of one cup of cilantro to the temple, and the people at the temple would say, what are we supposed to do with this? I believe that's actually how fajitas were invented. <laughs> I'll have to look at Maybe I can do some more study on this. But they were very, very detailed about tithing even the seasonings they would use in their cooking. That's the point. And Jesus gets into that with them. Look at what he said. You can see it on the screen. Luke chapter eleven forty two. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your garden herbs. Like you guys literally drilled down to that level of detail. But you neglect the justice and the love of God. You should practice the latter without leaving the former undone. In other words, if you want to get all in on the details, fine. There's nothing wrong with studying and learning and digging deeper and getting into all the nitty gritty. Nothing wrong with all of that. But don't do it to the point that it causes you to miss what's actually important. And so I would submit to you that if your study of God's word has caused you to go down a rabbit hole of legalism, well, then maybe you've missed the sweet spot. If you're so focused on the detail that you've missed out on the gospel, maybe you've missed the sweet spot. When I was in seminary, I had the privilege of, of studying with the daughter of one of the great theologians of the 20th century. Now, my, my instructor was a brilliant, brilliant theologian in her own right, but her father was someone who authored many of the books that are on my shelf one of the most influential voices of the last hundred years, particularly as it pertains to Pentecostal theology. And she would, in class, tell stories about her dad. Now, her dad's books are heady and thick and full of the original language says this, and we have sources from the third century that say this, and the nuance and the minutiae of this. I mean, he writes stuff that I read through and go, I don't know what any of these words mean. Right? Just really, really thick stuff. And yet she would tell these stories about being a teenager and going to pick him up at his office after he had worked late and finding him on the floor of his office with tears rolling down his cheeks and saying, Dad, Dad, what's wrong? And he would say, nothing. I'm just so overwhelmed by the love of God. 
Here he is studying what the ancient Greeks said about this word when they wrote about the Hebrews using this and the, uh, you know, this, uh, I don't even know what. And he would go through that and it would just cause him to be overwhelmed by the love of God. Man, I wish I was a tenth that smart. But if I ever get to be a tenth that smart, I want to study like that. I want to study like that. I want us to study like that. Learn anything you want to learn. I'm good with it. But don't miss out on what's important. One last indicator is study that's gone beyond the sweet spot. Here it is. We've missed the sweet spot if we fail to become more like Jesus. If we fail to become more like Jesus, we've missed the sweet spot. Uh, One more seminary story. I took a course, a required course for my degree uh, on pastoral ethics. And it ended up being one of the most interesting courses I took. We, We talked about real world problems and conundrums that you might encounter as a pastor. And then basically just just sat around and discussed and decided how would we bring the word of God to leverage in circumstances like these? What is the right thing to do? Pastoral ethics. How now should we live, right? One of the things I learned in that class is that the idea of taking pastoral ethics or the idea that a seminary would require a course on pastoral ethics is actually a relatively new idea. We used to not do that. In, in a lot of older degrees, it was just not part of the required coursework, but more and more and more, it is in fact becoming a part of the required coursework. And the reason is we have discovered in the last several decades that our seminaries and our Bible schools have become very, very good at producing some very, very smart people who don't necessarily know how to act like Jesus. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? I mean, shouldn't it work that the more and more you study the word of God, the more you are transformed by the word of God? Shouldn't studying God's word make us more like Jesus? (coughs) But apparently it's possible to study without actually being changed. And the Bible actually warns us about that possibility. Maybe we shouldn't have been surprised because the Bible says that's kind of how these things have a tendency to work. Again, taking from the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy, warns him about false teachers and he describes unethical religious leaders who prey upon gullible people. He says this, they are the kind who are always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Does that sound like anybody you know? Somebody who's always learning, who has all the alphabet soup after their name, all the books on their shelves, all the education you could ever want, but they just don't get it. And Timothy says, you in the church need to watch out for folks like that. Paul says to Timothy, rather, you in the church need to watch out for folks like that. We have to be aware that more study isn't always the answer. I used to like to watch the show The Big Bang Theory, a sitcom about the four young scientists at Caltech, PhDs in astrophysics and, and, and all sorts of quantum this and mechanics that, and, uh, but they were nerds, right? And so the comedy of the show is them being socially awkward and not actually knowing how to do anything despite being four of the smartest people on the planet. There's one scene where the four of them are in a car together driving down the highway at night and the car begins to sputter 
and actually the engine kills. And so Leonard, who is driving, pulls over to the shoulder of the road and he asks the other guys in the car, anything, know, anybody know anything about internal combustion engines? And the guys, oh yeah, of course. One of them says, it's 19th century, uh, you know, technology. Of course, we know everything about internal combustion engines. And Leonard says, okay, anybody know how to fix an internal combustion engine? Goes, no, no, we don't know that. <laughs> And so there they are, the smartest guys on the planet, stuck on the side of the road because nobody knows how to fix a car. Just because somebody has studied the Bible a lot doesn't mean they know how to use it. Studying God's word, of course, is a good thing. It's a very good thing, but we would do well to remember that studying it is no substitute for actually allowing it to shape us. And isn't that the goal? Man, I want to know a lot about God's word. I want to know God's word backward and forward. I want to know everything I can know about God's word. But all of that doesn't amount to anything if I don't actually let it shape me. If I don't actually let it form me. Somebody has said it's one thing to read God's word. It's something else to let God's word read me. And, and that's, that's kind of the goal, isn't it? That's kind of the goal, to be laid bare by what God says. So study, yes, but there has to be a purpose to it. There has to be a reason to it. There should be evidence to that. In the book of Acts, we're told that the people that heard the apostles preach among their very first sermons were confused because they knew these to be uneducated men. But they spoke with such authority. And their audience said, we took note of the fact that they had just been with Jesus note of the fact that they had just been with Jesus. That's what we're here for, to be with Jesus. We want to be shaped by the word of God. We want to be shaped by the power of God. We want to be shaped by the presence of God. Learning is good, of course it is. Learning is important, but learning isn't why you came today. As we've talked about all the changes in the past year and, and churches going to the live stream and going to remote, I think too many Christians have made the mistake of saying, I can stay at home because I can still hear the sermon from home. I've got no argument with that. Of course you can hear the sermon from home. Unless, of course, there's a problem with the technology. But of course you can hear, from the, you can hear the sermon from home. That's not why you came. You didn't come to hear a Bible teaching today. You didn't come to learn some more information to add to your notebook. It's great if that's part of what you do, but that's not why you came. And so saying, well, I could do it any other way. Well, great, you could download the transcript too. I mean, you could get on YouTube, you could hear it. You can learn anything you want to learn. That's not why you came. That's not why you came. It's not the reason to be here. It's okay if we don't always know all the answers. Did you know that? It's okay. By the way, that applies to me as well. If you haven't heard your pastor say, you know, I'm not sure lately, chances are he's been lying to you. You gotta keep him to accountable to that. It's okay to not always have all the answers for sure, as long as we're willing to be changed. The Gospel of John tells a story of a blind man who encounters Jesus and was changed. He was given back his sight. 
And of course, this created a commotion and, and, and all of these questions to be answered. And how did this happen? And when did it happen? And in whose power and in whose authority did this happen? And people start lobbing all these questions at this, this blind man who could see, who was changed by Jesus. And they're asking him all of these things. And he finally says, he goes, you know what, guys? You know what? I don't know. I don't know the answers to your question. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. I was blind and now I see. Do you want to know more or do you want to be changed? That's where the sweet spot is. I mentioned my professor a few moments ago. Her father was, perhaps you know the name, Gordon Fee. One of my absolute favorite authors. Has contributed so much to the way we know and think and understand our faith today. His books are all over the shelves in my office, as are the books of N.T. Wright. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Think about theologians who have absolutely transformed the way we think and understand our faith. Martin Luther King Jr. We could go back hundreds of years to the Reformation. We could talk about Martin Luther. We could talk about John Calvin. We could go back further than that into the patristics, the very first centuries of Christian thought and talk about men like Origen and Augustine, women like Hildegard, who absolutely founded the, the, the scholarship of Christianity, this stuff is important. But you know who the greatest theologians of all time were? It was the men and women who walked with Jesus and whose lives were shaped directly by him. Peter, John, Mary of Magdalene, dozens of others that we could name and bring to mind because their stories and in some cases their writings are in our Bibles. And I would submit that nothing that Gordon Fee ever wrote compares to the gospel, compares to the words that Peter wrote to the early church. Nothing that N.T. Wright ever said compares to what Peter said to the crowd gathered on the day of Pentecost. It doesn't even come close. And these men and women, they weren't shaped because they studied and learned and went to the library and read everything. Comparatively speaking, they were uneducated. But their impact was great because they had been shaped by Jesus. Sometimes I call them fishermen theologians. They weren't all fishermen, of course, but that's kind of the classic idea, right? Fishermen theologians, blue collar guys, workaday guys who had had never gone to post-secondary this. They didn't have any sort of degrees or any kind of learning that would impress anybody. But they were the fishermen theologians. They weren't armed with a formal education or a big library, but they became the greatest thinkers that our world has ever known because they were shaped by Jesus. And that's all it takes. In church, I want HRCC to be a church of fishermen theologians. And we're praying for our students that are going back to school. I, I hope you guys do great. You know, we celebrated Garrett as he got his master's degree this year. That was awesome. He worked hard to make that happen. I know some of you are going back and working on, 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 on educational goals. Some of them are, have to do with your career. But there's people here, too, that are using their spare time and their resources to dig deeper in their ministry gifts and learn and be equipped. That's awesome. We're going to keep doing that. I am all for that. But you know what the sweet spot means? 
The sweet spot means we hang on to that, but we say Jesus is going to shape us here. We're going to be a community of fishermen theologians. We're going to be a people who are going to be able to speak intelligently about what Jesus is doing in my life. And yeah, it's going to line up with the Word of God because we study that too, but it's going to be about what Jesus is doing in my life. That's what a fisherman theologian does. More than anything else, it means that we follow Jesus. And so I want to invite you as I close today to perhaps rededicate yourself to that process. You know, maybe today's message is one of those both-and both messages. Maybe you hear this and, and you think, well, one of the things I could do is I could do a better job of studying the Word of God. There's absolutely room for that. But maybe you come away and say, and as I do that, I need to let the Word of God read me. I need to let God's Word read me. I need to be shaped and formed and transformed by what His words are speaking into my life. That's my goal. That's my wish. That's my desire for you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we submit ourselves for exactly that purpose today. Too much study? Is there such a thing? Uh, I'll let the moms and dads figure that out for their kids. I'll let the teachers worry about that in the classroom. But I recognize as I read your word today that sometimes there is a weariness in trying to learn one more thing. Sometimes there's a futility in trying to figure out one more thing. And maybe that's because we've missed the sweet spot. Maybe that's because our aim has been off. Maybe that's because you weren't calling us to be smarter or better debaters. You weren't asking us to be PhDs. You weren't inviting us to be so certain that we know it all and everybody else has it wrong. But Lord, you were speaking a living word into our lives. And so God, on behalf of each one who is gathered here today, I ask that that word would be true to what you say about it, that it would be sharp, that it would be insightful in what it's trying to accomplish. Lord, that as we crack open our Bibles and study once more, as the Bereans did, we would be a noble people who know how to examine your word, but then also know how to say, Jesus, this is who we are becoming. This is who we are becoming. I pray, Lord, that as the world encounters Hobson Road Community Church, they would be not impressed by how many PhDs are here. They would not be impressed by the fanciness of what we have to say. But, Lord, they would be transformed by the substance of our testimony. I pray, Lord, that they would take note, that the world would take note, that, yes, this people has been with Jesus. This people has been in the presence of Jesus. We submit ourselves to you for that purpose today. Would you have your way in our lives? And everybody says, amen. 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 God's blessing be upon you.